Hi, this is a podcast for the best bits of the Breakfasters. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Triple R. Uh, Kat's parents came over for a visit last night. Um, that's a lie, obviously. They didn't. Um, that's not allowed. Um, but um, we did have a meeting on the internet. Um, on Anyway, we played, um, had a board game night um, and played, because we found this online version of Scattergories. You ever played... You fan of categories at all? Can't you know? Can you remind me what? Yeah, yeah, totally. Because it's one of the. I'm with you. Like I, yeah. I'm like I know it, but how do you play it again? So it's where you get, um, uh, you get a letter, and then there's categories. Like there's twelve categories where you have to put in an answer that uh, with a letter. Each word has to start with that letter. So okay. it might be you know vehicle, and then the word might be B. And so you'd put like BMW or whatever, like in this 12, and you only get a certain amount of time. And when the board game version has that really intense um, timer. That's what I remember, the timer from it. Yeah, it goes. Yeah. But the the online version um, has thankfully doesn't have the intense timer, but still it's like 120 seconds and it goes so quickly. Um, so... Uh, we played it last night. It's one of those. Yeah, it took. I think it takes a couple of rounds to kind of get into the, into the vibe of it. You know, to work out. You know, just to get your mind thinking. Um, anyway, the first round though, Kath's dad is one of you know is super intelligent. I think, um, but also, gee whiz, it took him a while to understand this game, and it was like I don't know. It's it's a simple premise, but he still didn't, and he's probably played it. It's, I'm it's certain he's played it before, but still was like, we're like he'd give an answer. We're like, what? <laughs> that is that is no. There's no points for that. So, for example, the um the first round, the letter was I, um, and he went with um, so one of the um. The answers. One of the things you had to come up with was a um, a word ending in the letter N. Yeah, just that word ends in the letter N, right? So and starts with I, ends with N. So I went for the most obvious one and went in, which I quite surprising no one else went with. That's the other thing. If someone else has the same word, then neither of you get a point. Um, so you've got to think of less oh. obvious ones. Um, everyone else managed to come up with something. Sam put tin. <laughs> we're like, what? Because that ends with N. And we're like, yes, but it, it starts with T. Because, oh, I don't understand. <laughs> But he's still trying to argue his point as well. <laughs> like on the same one, there was um, uh, a um, oh name a, a cosmetic or makeup item. Um, the letter was I. Do you want to guess what he went with? What eyeliner. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to 
we were like, no, well, that's after the day. And he goes, no, there's that, there's that brand, the eyeliner. <laughs> Discount at Priceline. Yeah. Eyeliner. Um, there was um, also, it was, you know, name something that's black. Um, and he went indigo, and we we're like, no, that's it's a no, whole other colour. Yeah, <laughs> and he goes, it's you know, it's very dark. Oh, <laughs> like, sure. like, like, you've just named another colour. <laughs> like, name something that's purple, <laughs> blue. It's almost, <laughs> you know. God, it was funny. And then so we after so that's all in one round, and we're like. Explain it to him once again that you, the important part of the game is to have a word that starts with the letter that they give you, you know. He goes, all right, I think I understand now. So the next round, the letter is E, and um, the first one was a, a book, a, yeah, a book that with the title starts with the E, and he went with Dark Emu. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> like, how do you not? understand this game and he went oh yeah and then so next round let's give this another go the letter is m um so and then the you had to come up with something that um had uh, a double letter in the word like a you know yeah double letter so the letter is m a word starting with m with two double with a double letter in there and he went with comma like, oh my no. god! <laughs> this is like the fourth or fifth round, and we're like, <laughs> so I had to start with the because oh, I thought you had to get to like well, you could, you know, you could say mammal that works. Um, that's what I went with, but um, but he's like he's like I just it was so funny how it took him so long to understand this game. I don't think he ever really did. <laughs> But at the same time, he's still very in, intelligent and comes up with genius ideas for things. For example, uh, he put the laptop that we were um, communicating with you, put it on the Lazy Susan on the coffee table so it could give us a, you know, gives a spin around the room. Like, oh, have a look what's going on the Lazy nice. Susan. Oh, I mean, who owns a Lazy Susan? I love that you had one. <laughs> Just available for you. <laughs> Finally paid for itself after 40 years. <laughs> Triple R. For Weird Science, we're lucky to be joined by the socially distanced and always sanitised Dr. Jen. Morning, Dr. Jen. Good morning, Daniel. How do you know I'm sanitised? It's just what they've always said about you. They say yes. she she reeks of alcohol in a disinfected <laughs> sense. I'm very concerned by that. It's all right. Good to see you this morning. But, Daniel, I have a really important question for you, okay? Yeah. If you were to be playing poker, and I know that's a little bit hard right now given mm. the restrictions, but if you were to be playing poker, would you wear dark glasses? Uh, no, I wouldn't. I'm – this is a separate conversation, I think, but I'm appalled <laughs> that 
televised poker allows people to wear disguises. <laughs> well, but it's I'm not really so much interested in the disguises, but, you know, lots of poker players wear dark glasses, right? Yeah, because they're trying to conceal their, their poker face. Exactly. So that's what we're talking about today because I figure mask wearing seems likely to be with us for a very long time. Well, who knows, but it's certainly not going anywhere quickly. Mm. And so this whole idea of how much is our interpersonal communication being disrupted by the fact that half of our face are covered. And so I was, you know, doing a bit of research, as you guys know I like to do, and I didn't realise that wearing dark glasses in poker is such a big thing because people are so concerned about their little tells from their eyes. It shows how naive I am when it comes to poker that I didn't even know this was a thing. (laughs) Well, it's just a part of the sport. Like, isn't the idea that Sport. Well, sure. For the sake of argument, that you take off the glasses and suddenly it becomes harder rather than just covering up your face. Anyway, you've really got me going here, Dr. Chan. (laughs) My goodness, I had no idea, Daniel, that this is going to get you. Should we quickly move on? But but smiling, yeah, it's it's been a bit harder to smile and connect. Well, I just find it really interesting that I, because I've honestly, when I'm out running or walking the dog, I've actually been having trouble recognising people sometimes from across the road. And it's really led Mm. me to think about what am I tuned into with people? And it seems like for me, smiles are super important. And Mm. so I wanted to know, what does the research say? Because we've all heard, you know, Shakespeare said, eyes are the window to the soul. And we've all used that saying, I can see it in your eyes. And Sarah, I'm really hoping you've got a good song lined up, my friend. I don't. I'm so sorry. I'm just using I'm just using seven months, seven, nearly eight months pregnant as an excuse for everything I'm not doing at the moment. Oh, that's totally good. Thanks. Five months pregnant would have been perfect. (laughs) Turns out that there's been lots of research done into eyes and how much they matter. So we know that newborns, so even a two-day-old kid much prefers to look at a face that is looking at them than the same face that's looking slightly away. So there's something really instinctive in us that we like looking into people's eyes. Um, And we know that as soon as we meet someone, our eyes are the, the part of the body that we look at first and the part of the body we look at longest. And do you remember years ago I told you guys about this crazy research to show that if you just put up a picture on a wall of eye of, of eyes, they could even be cartoon eyes, people are less likely to litter, they're less likely to steal, they pay more attention to recycling yeah. rules. Like, you know, if you've got a communal tea room, just put up a picture of some eyes and people won't steal from the chocolate box. They'll mm. actually put money and pay, pay for the chocolate. That so. explains the handmaiden's tale under his eye. Yeah, exactly. Constantly reinforcing it. So, yeah, so eyes are really important. And so there's interesting things about eyes. So one of the things to know is that humans, we are unique among among all primates in having such a large white area around our coloured iris. So it turns out that no other primates have that. And the reason it's important is because it means even from a distance we can tell what direction someone is looking in, which turns out to be quite important. You know, you need to know whether someone's looking at you or whether somebody's looking away And, and our brain really light up in response to trying to understand that, which I found really interesting. And then there's the whole thing of the pupils. What have you guys heard about pupil size? Uh, just the dilation. Yeah, they get real big when you have illegal substances. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't know anything about that, Jez. I'm fine. I've just seen but. it. 
<laughs> Among other people, yeah. Mm. When else do your pupils enlarge? When you're in the light and maybe when you're excited. Am I just making that up? No, that's totally right. When you see something you like, when you get excited, when you see someone you're attracted to. So that's a serious oh, that's a giveaway. Yeah, mm. serious giveaway that your pupils oh. dilate. But Daniel Kahneman, who's now, you know, is Nobel Prize winner, he did this cool study in the 60s showing that the more our brains are, are computing things, also the bigger our pupils get. He made people um, memorise either three-digit numbers or bigger, bigger numbers. And the longer the number you had to memorise, the more your pupils dilated as you tried to remember them, which is super interesting. How strange. Yeah, yeah. So the harder you think, the wider you the your, your pupils get massive. Well, something like that. Yeah. Oh my god! But in terms of this whole mask wearing thing, I wanted to find a study that looked at how good we are at reading people's emotions when we can only see their eyes. Oh. And it turns out we are really good at reading people's emotions, highly accurate. So they had a study where they showed people just eyes, and they had to be able to say whether the person was happy or sad or disgusted or um, uh, surprised, angry, whatever it was. I think there were six main emotions. This was in 2017. This study. And people are exceptionally good at it. All we have to see is somebody's eyes and we can say how they're feeling. So I kind of think that mouths are really important, but it turns out that mouths aren't that important. Um, And, you know, they say mouths can lie because you can fake a smile even if you're not really feeling like smiling. But the whole idea that you can't fake your eyes smiling turns out to be true. So, Do we need the two together, though? Because Daniel and I were talking about this the other day. I got out the other day to get a coffee and had forgotten my mask and screamed at everyone, oh, my God, I forgot my mask, and then wrapped a thing around my head. But all these people (laughs) on the line turned around and looked at me and their eyes were just kind of – I couldn't read what they were – I don't know if they were smiling or horrified, but their eyes just kind of seemed to be staring at me. And I wondered whether people are using less expression because they know their faces are covered or whether there's some relationship between needing to see the two functioning together at all. Yeah, I wondered about that too. I wondered if we're all going to stop having such expressive faces because we feel like they're just kind of hidden. I mean, in terms of what we're reading in the eyes, so this same experiment then looked at what's the important thing. Is it the the angle of your brow or is it um, the wrinkles around your nose or the wrinkles around your eyes? Like if people are this good at discerning emotion, what aspect of the eye is giving it away? Um, And it turns out to be how open our eyes are. So we narrow our eyes to kind of increase our focus and and that shows that we're thinking hard or maybe that we're suspicious or that we're disgusted or whatever it is and then when we're feeling happy or excited or we're feeling um you know in awe of something then we open our eyes up really wide so maybe they were just kind of you know narrowing their eyes in judgment Sarah maybe they were all just (laughs) (laughs) I'm I've been worried about COVID wrinkles uh, yeah. just because, because my exaggeration of the smile so that, so that it lifts up into the eyes yeah. to convey that I'm friendly because of course it's our only social interaction for the day a lot of the time. And there's a lot of import in it. You're uh, also farther apart. So you feel like you need people to see more what you're doing with your eyes. They're not as close to them to kind of see the nuance in them. That's right. So do you reckon we're all going to learn to fake smiles? Like if the argument is that you can, your eyes give away whether you're truly feeling a smile or not, are we all going to learn to make our eyes look like they're smiling because we're so invested in communicating that? Like this could lead. Well, in, Holly, in Hollywood they call it a smize. 
So yes. keeping his face straight so you don't get wrinkles, but smiling with your eyes. And I think that's what we're all going to develop, the, oh. the fake smiles. God, you've just added to my plate of things to worry about wrinkles. <laughs> 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 concerns, and now it's right up there. Thanks, guys. Really. Um, all right, well, Dr. Jen, see you at the next poker match. Can't wait. <laughs> Triple R. Someone who also needs a wet-ass language warning is Simone Ubaldi. Right. Here to talk screen stuff. Morning, Simone. I'm so happy that's where you went with that. <laughs> anyway, Daniel, because, geez, skating up the night. <laughs> I had the Google whap last week, you know. Um, the world oh. but And then I was like, oh, of course that's what it stands for. What else would it stand for? <laughs> <laughs> Brain of a teenage trucker. How are you going to do? Yeah, good. I'm excited about this film. Have you seen it? No. I have, yeah. Okay. So one one out of three is not bad. Yeah, I think so. Um, okay. All right. I so, wanted to wait to see what you thought of it first. Oh, Geraldine, it's, it's, so, it's so tricky to know whether or not this review is going to improve or um, or deplete the experience. So it's a new Charlie Kaufman film, which has debuted on Netflix because 2020. Charlie Kaufman, Oscar-winning director, rather, uh, screenwriter of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind um, and writer-director of Synecdoche, New York and Anomalisa and Adaptation. Did he direct Adaptation? So he is, are you guys familiar with, some of those films, one of those yeah. films. Mm, yeah. Very much. Yep. So he's just a big genius weirdo who often displeases people with his complicated, melancholy, confusing films. Mm. His new film on Netflix, which is called I'm Thinking of Ending Things, is his most confusing, impenetrable, possibly genius work yet. It is a film, and here's where it gets tricky for us this morning, that's impossible to understand if you don't know what it's about before you start watching it. I just don't think that there is a person on this earth who could who could fairly claim that they actually understood what was going on in the movie without at least being familiar with the source material, which is a a book by a Canadian writer called uh, Ian Reid, or having had the film explained to them beforehand. But bizarrely, and I wanted to do a survey because you know that my perception of what is acceptable to everyone is often wrong. Um, I went out and I just read dozens of reviews and no one's actually explaining in their reviews what the film is about, which makes me think that I'm not allowed to explain what the film is about, even though I know full well that anyone watching the film will not understand what it's about and may find that experience frustrating. Is that fair, Dan? Oh yeah, I'm very reluctant to interrupt. That's absolutely fair and well well said. Okay, so here is what is like perceivable about the film when you watch it. There is a couple; they are driving through a blizzard on the way to visit the guy Jake's parents for the first time. The majority, like the majority of the film, is expressed through the internal monologue of the girl, whose name starts out being Lucy but changes multiple times through the film, who very early on in the film, through the internal monologue, says that she's con- she's thinking of ending things, we presume, with Jake. 
the couple have this extremely awkward, discomforting, quasi-intellectual, performative conversation, sort of meditative about who they are, about the snowstorm, about what they're going to do. But really it's this guy, Jake, trying to please this girl, Lucy, who can't be pleased or is just very ill at ease for some reason. It's philosophical. It's weird. It doesn't always make sense. It references a whole bunch of texts, uh, and things out in the world but claims that they're kind of original thoughts of the girl. And that's just the first sort of half an hour of the film, the first act. And then it goes into the parents' house where we find the parents played by Tony Collette and David Thewlis behaving like hysterical, overacting, farcical characters that change age as they move in and out of rooms and details of their physical appearance change and various other weird things start happening in the house over the course of an extraordinarily uncomfortable dinner And throughout all of this, we're cutting to and from footage of a high school janitor for reasons that are completely unexplained. And there are multiple references to the film, to the musical Oklahoma, uh, and things kind of spiral darkly from there, descending or building to this crescendo of weirdness where you completely and honestly, I'm going to say the vast majority of viewers will have absolutely no comprehension of what's going on. We're in a high school. There's a ballet sequence. There's a musical. All of the characters are artificially aged. Very strange stuff happens. So that's the movie. And <laughs> I mean, it's based on a book. So presumably if you've read the book, you would have a uh, fulsome comprehension. Here's the thing. If you read the book, and if you then have, as I did, and then became completely delighted. I love Kaufman so much that I was really on board for this film, even though I had no idea what was going on. And and if you love Kaufman, you will love what's happening scene by scene. There, the atmosphere in the film is intense. The performances are amazing. The kind of philosophical musings, if you're a particular kind of wanker. Yeah. Um, You know, they're really engaging, but it's long. It's like two hours. So if you're not into all of that stuff and you're watching for two hours, hoping that it all, something is revealed to you and you haven't read the book, then you are out of luck, my friend. Um, So the question then becomes, do I tell you what it's about? But I think probably I shouldn't because it seems to be. You're going to have to tell us off air then because I need to know. (laughs) I I think, I, I think you could say, People, I mean, I want to know what you think the film is about. And I, I think if you went into the film with an understanding, uh, it is a very, yeah, enhance the enjoyment of the film. All right, so tune out now if you don't want an understanding. Because this isn't a spoiler. This is just your framing for the film. No, it, it is like widely accepted to be what is actually going on in the film, and the film makes sense. It's like a lock and a key, and it clicks, and everything makes sense. So okay. now give me three minutes. The entire film is taking place in the head of the janitor in the high school, who is the geriatric version of the boy Jake, who, while contemplating his own suicide, is inventing paths not taken, including the possibility the romantic relationship with a girl called Lucy or something else might have saved him. So this the girl is a fiction of the guy and the guy is the old janitor and uh, I'm thinking of ending things has a double meaning in this context. For people who are still listening and who are like, God damn it, spoiler, it's not really a spoiler. No. It's- thing that makes everything in the film make sense what I have just denied you is the ability to watch a film that is so willfully 
difficult and obtuse that it's its own kind of magical experience. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry about that, but but you know you might you may you may enjoy it more now because there's so many breadcrumbs and so much richness in the film if you know that that's what you're actually watching. Wow. Well, the, the closest I could get with you know my l- limited you know skill set would be that there's there's a line in the film that time passes through us blowing like a cold wind and the film is the cold wind yeah yeah it's true <laughs> because because time you know it collapses it really plays with time this film it is clear that the film has this mournful uh it's this mournful kind of perspective of aging and this mournful perspective of the intransience of relationship, the the transience of relationships, and how just essentially sad the coming of death is. All that stuff is clearly in there. You just don't quite know how to piece it together. It's just like this intense, almost suffocating atmosphere of this clever, weird film. But then when you have that kind of narrative device, because you can follow that the whole way through and just sort of just sort of get that they're the themes. But you know, Dan, when you come to that big operatic ending, did you get lost with the pig and the and the dance and the singing? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You just sort of go with it. You just go with it, right? So mm. there is there is a pleasure of just going with it, which I have denied everyone still listening, and I'm deeply sorry for that. No, I don't think it is necessarily a pleasure. it is like two hours of just being confused so i don't know yeah it's that way i think that i'm really excited to watch the film again knowing what i know because you know it's rare that you get to have such a late experience so huge event for me not everyone loves kaufman if you love kaufman there is a huge amount to love here Mm. can i ask whether you know the film is so well sort of acted, beautifully shot, all of that. If you took out the professionalism and you lay it on, let's say it was a first-time director or whatever, would it just be so impenetrable and wanky that it would be dismissed out of hand? It would never get a run on Netflix. Yes. And there are many indie films that are made and maybe screen at Sundance and then disappear that are that are in that vein. Mm. Um, I think it's interesting that Kaufman has borrowed – a lot of visual tricks from Gondry from Eternal Sunshine for this film. Um, And he's become, as a director, Synecdoche was a super visual film, Annamalisa was puppets, that was a whole other thing. But he, as a director, he's sort of using the visual medium um, incredibly strongly here, and I think that's just lessons over time. He's become actually a really, to my mind, a really amazing director as well as this kind of bravura um, screenwriter. And it's worth adding that it is funny as well. It's funny. All of his stuff is funny in an incredibly yeah. depressing way. It's yeah. funny. It's and, big. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, Fee Wright was on the show, you know, he's got a book out as well. So it's a pretty 2020s a Kaufman year. And kind of apparently. It makes sense, doesn't it, that it's a Kaufman year? Like so yeah, much. Yeah, that's so true. Kaufman actually seems pretty lighthearted in relation to the general state of the world. Like, but that's I, because he's got everything going on in his Right, like this would just seem so whatever to him. Yeah, true. And also because we're all just going to die alone, I think is the general. Yeah, that too. Okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is I'm thinking of ending things. Uh, And it's on Netflix and uh, it's Charlie Kaufman's new film and Simone Ubaldi, thanks very much. Thanks, guys. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. 
checking in with local comedians in lockdown. It's time for Wednesday Wisecracker, and we welcome back to the show Jonathan Schuster. Morning, Jonathan. Good morning. How are you? Yes, well. That's good. It's all happening here. What's, uh, <laughs> how are you feeling? Um, pretty good. What was that wild noise in the background? Was that your dog, Geraldine? No. What? That, that, geez, that's how she laughs. Ah, I was oh. laughing. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I just thought of like a yeah. Anyway, um, I'm oh. well. Um, my uh, my mum's working on an album at the moment. I'm not doing much, um, but my mum's working on an album, so I thought I'd discuss that today. Okay, what um, kind of like a photo album, or she laying music, down some tracks? She laying down some tracks. She's a, a musician by trade. Um, no, actually, she works for a nursing home. I'm not sure if she's still doing it during coronavirus, but she's got, like, the nicest job. It's, like, the meaning of life, I think she's finding. She works at a nursing home where she plays music for the, the oldies, and mm. she also just chats to them about space and gives them hand massages, right? So it's yeah. a, she's, she's really into it. So she's telling me she's writing an album, and then she – said, I've got some big news. Um, I, I wrote a letter um, to Barry Gibb um, wow. from the Bee Gees wow. to ask him to produce it. Um, and I said, what do you mean you got his? And she said, oh, I just found his address on the internet. And in the same week, she's also told me that Tom Hanks has got some allegations against him, which I don't want to get into, but I'm like, that is insane, and I Googled it, and it's a QA, QAnon conspiracy. Yeah. Oh. So I, it's so crazy that in the same week she got Barry Gibbs' address and finding this horrific gossip about Tom Hanks, and she doesn't really know how to send emails, like, but she's able to get into like, the dark web. And find addresses and stuff. So it's insane. Anyway. To be honest, sorry, I'm a bit more worried, concerned about the massages in the pandemic, but nonetheless. Yeah. So, <laughs> so she hasn't touched them, I don't think, for a while. Oh, thank good. God. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know. Um, so anyway, she's um, – I'm just worried she's a bit like, have you seen Donnie Darko? Probably not since she was 16, but um, there's just a scene of an old woman going to the letterbox every day. I'm just a bit worried that she's going to be doing that with the the Barry Gibb letter. Um, what? I, it, so she sent him an email and is expecting a, a letter in the post? I think she sent him a letter. Like I an actual he, a proper old school letter? Yeah. Wow. But, um, I used to have a friend who used to um, reply to emails for celebrities in Canada, like kind of the Rex Hunt of Canada, this fisherman, and these people would just send him big fish photos and stuff. So I imagine it would just go to someone like that for mum. I don't know. I don't know what will happen. But um, anyway, the thing is she went to the the, um, the uh, pet Pound. Uh, What's it called? Pet shelter, maybe. Or? Shelter. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so there was um, two cats there that weren't being um, taken, and they two cats with AIDS. And she she was telling me that um, she wanted both of these cats, but she didn't have room for them. So if no one wanted to pick them up, she was going to have to um, take them. Um, but luckily, someone took both of the cats. Um, 
Anyway, from that experience, she's now decided that the album she's making is going to be soothing music for animals. Oh. So I'm sort of putting a call out today. It's not that funny, but if anyone works at an animal shelter and wants to play my mum's record, can they please write to me or the show because it would actually, like, make her dream come true. And but, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Uh, just Jonathan Schuster um, on Facebook or Instagram. Yeah. Right. What, what's your mum's talent? So what's her con- contribution to the record? Is she a singer? She's a singer her, um, and a keyboardist. Her last album was called Masterpiece, but Peace was spelled P-E-A-C-E. Nice. Um, and this is a new album dedicated to animals. I would, um, I would ask to send you a... A file, but um, I don't want you to play it really. It's embarrassing. Um, plus, your listeners are more human, I think. But I did say to her, I said, Mum, you've got to get some confidence. You shouldn't just be making albums for pets. You should be sort of making them for like peers and friends and stuff. But she's actually happy. She wants it to be for animals. So, um, yeah. It's a shame we can't. And where did um, Barry Gibb fit into it? Oh, he's going to produce it, is he? Yeah, hopefully. So I don't know if he's um, well acquainted with animal music, but um, I don't know what she's thinking. It's a bit sad, to be honest. I go, why are you sending Barry Gibb and why does he want to get a – she's listening. Sorry, Mum. I told her to (laughs) tune in because I'm promoting her uh, album. um, Does Barry Gibb live nearby? He's Australian, but I think he lives in L.A. Oh, I was actually tough. going – I was going to give – I have one friend in L.A. and I was going to get a letter, write a letter pretending to be Barry Gibb, send it to my friend and get, like, an envelope and get her to send it back to mum to make oh. – so just just so mum just, you know, has a bit of closure in her life. <laughs> I wouldn't say that he wants to make it as well. I wouldn't lead her on. Well, yeah, what would the letter say? How would you – your, your album is such a beautiful idea, Gail, um, but unfortunately at this time I'm unable to produce as I've got other commitments, something like that. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's pretty good. All yeah. the woods for the future. Mm. XX, Barry Gibb. Would you, are you tempted to help out with lyrics or anything like that? Sort of. I, I play music. Me and Mum play a bit of music sometimes. Um but I don't, I don't know if there's going to be many lyrics for, I cats. don't know what, yeah, for cats with AIDS. Um, I don't know what they want to listen to, you know. So I would be happy to work on it. But she's just sort of recording it on her phone at the moment. I might help record. Do you rent out your um, studios to recording? <laughs> not your, when we're not in a pandemic, we would, yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. I'm just trying to network, to be honest. I've got nothing going on. The only – I was thinking this. The only thing I'm doing at the moment is I've actually saved up all my fingernails and toenails and I'm going to, like, make a a bit of art. And that's the only thing I'm going to do in six months. It's so – yeah. Oh, I got to – how much time do I have left? Do I have any – yeah, go for it. I got in trouble the other day. Um, I was shopping and on the way back from the shops is a church and in front of the church there's all this um, 
rosemary. So I um, was walking and I decided to pick off, like, not much rosemary, right? And I, I picked it and then um, a man came up to me and he said, what are you doing? And I said, picking some rosemary. And he said, what would God think that you're picking rosemary from his garden? And I And I just, like said calmly back i said honestly i believe god would you know appreciate me taking rosemary from his garden that he's created it's kind of a nice thing and then the man was like oh yeah fair enough and then he's like sort of left who knew yeah Turned out to be quite an amicable, reasonable conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, good point. Your, your God's a bit angrier than my God, but that's okay. And um... wow, what people are getting up to some amazing stuff in lockdown, aren't they? Um, well, Jonathan, good luck with all your projects. And Tom Hanks is innocent. Thank you. I completely agree. Um, listen to my mum's record. Have a lovely day. <laughs> Triple ah. 20 years on from the Sydney Olympics, legendary runner Cathy Freeman is the subject of a new documentary, Freeman, as filmed by Lawrence Billier in collaboration with Stephen Page and Bangara Dance Theatre. And Stephen, its artistic director, joins us on the line now. Welcome back to Breakfasters. <laughs> Good morning, guys. Um, before we get to your involvement in the doco, take us back to the year 2000. You weren't exactly a passive bystander to the celebrations, were you? <laughs> no, uh, I was very... Um... Look, that, that, that was a very exciting time for myself and the company. Uh, obviously, we were a part of the, um, the Sydney opening ceremony and uh, the Indigenous segment, uh, the Awakenings, and uh, I co-directed that with Rhoda Roberts. So, uh, you know, and Jacopo Magnanian was one of our dancers at the time. He was quite instrumental in the opening ceremony, walking alongside little Nicky Webster. <laughs> um, but the, yeah. the great thing about that was... Um, you know, just to get to know Kathy at the time, and you know, we didn't like, know to the last minute that she was going to like the cauldron. So, um, you know, we were sort of, yeah, we just we were just aware of it. It was just exciting times. So we were bringing, you know, a thousand uh, First Nations mob together to, to, you know, to come together on Euro Nation, and um, yeah, just a uh, yeah, very vivid, um, very yeah, just a, a really good. Um, good moment in our lives, yeah. Yeah. And so fast forward 20 years, having watched the race at uh, – you're at the Sydney Opera House, I think, at the time. What what was your involvement in this doco along with uh, Lillian Banks in portraying Cathy? Yeah, look, I'm sorry about that. I mis- misled your, your first question. Obviously, we were involved in the opening ceremony and Cathy was right in the courtroom at the time and then, you know, Bangara was um, at the Sydney Opera House straight after that and a couple of weeks later, um, we all got to watch it in the green room at the Opera House. So we weren't really... Uh, I wasn't in the stadium that night, but uh, we were in the green room. Um, I was just connecting all the experiences at once there, guys. Yeah, that, of course. Right? But, um, but, yeah, we 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 were in the green room and it was just very exciting. We were doing a production called Skin and Archie Roach, Wayne Blair, Jacopura, and Garrett Dances, Russell Page, um, and all of us. And, um, yeah, we made sure that, uh, yeah, we had a little break at that time and, um, and, and then watched the race. And look, like everybody else, you know, it was, it stopped the nation. And, uh, you know, it's one of the biggest audiences that they had at that time. And, um, yeah, it's just great to work with uh, Lawrence Billier on this and, um, and just go back and um, listen to Kathy's stories that she recorded for the documentary. And just to, yeah, just to reflect a little bit more about um, what was inside her mind at the time, uh, which was really, really quite interesting. The description, um, the way Cathy talks about 
you know, that race and everything around it. It's really quite beautiful and poetic the way she tells the story. She really, it's quite incredible how she puts you in that moment. Um, did you find that, like, when you were kind of choreographing um, Lillian, did you find that, like, was that a, a bit of a hindrance? Like, the words are already so beautiful, so how do you find, you know, the, the mm. dance to match that? Look, I, I think when Lawrence was uh, first looking at what sort of style, what sort of layering of documentary talent it was going to be, you know, up against, you know, still photography and, and journalistic images and the race from that time, uh, you know, she was also talking about not having Kathy talk to camera. So to have sit down and she did all these recordings and all these beautiful recordings of Kathy telling stories. Um, and so, you know, when I got to listen to Kathy relive um, those moments and the way she was describing, uh, yeah, it, it is it is like poetry, you know, because she's talking about an energy and a spirit. And, and I think that's what um, got me was that that's why Lawrence wanted to have another layer where we had a Bangara dancer, and that dancer represented her consciousness from that memory, from that time, past, present, and future. So we created this little spirit, this energy, this light that Kathy talks about, and it was the dancer, Lillian Banks, who embodied uh, those words, and then we shaped the choreography through the film. So then every time Kathy went back in her reflection or her memory, and she was talking about that energy and that light and that spirit, then we were able to, um, yeah, we were, we were able to be embodied by that, by, by the creation of Lillian. And as a, sorry, as a, as a um, choreographer and student of movement, what do you take from Kathy Freeman's running and her form? <laughs> student, student of movement. <laughs> so when you say student of movement, I feel so young, I'm 55 and you say student of movement. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lifelong <laughs> student of movement. <laughs> <laughs> I've just never heard that term. I come from the bush, brother. I come from a backyard of, you know, 12 kids, uh, you know, performing to the Jackson 5 and the Supreme <laughs> and learning to dance in the backyard. So I, I didn't have a big training, um, you know. So, But uh, choreography is such a funny thing, isn't it? It's such a long word for such a silly thing, really. Um, you know, I mean, telling stories through bodies is a huge part of Aboriginal culture, you know, ceremony, song. You know, the songman comes out, the digi player will play the dig, you have music, you have story, you've always got story, you know, and in digging this dance, you've always got story. So if you switch it into the contemporary world, we try to take those creation values into the contemporary world. So, look, you know, we're just talking about Kathy here. We're talking about this person that comes once every 100 years and she just was the, the pride and joy of our culture. She empowered our people. Uh, she, she spent from the time she was, you know, young girl right through to, to that race and a little bit beyond, you know. I mean, that was her whole life in that bracket of, you know, 28 years or whatever that was. Uh, so, um, you know, so to relive her story in a documentary and to have a layer of spirit and energy that's close to her First Nations people, which is she, she's so proud of her mob, you know, like she's so proud of where she comes from and she talks about it. And, you, you know, she carried two flags and then John Howard and everyone else got the shits about that. You know, she was really, really, she was just proud to be black, you know, let alone just be a really amazing athlete, you know. And that story went global, you know. Her race uh, went global and, and her... Her, her passion and her pride for a culture went global, you know. Um, so, yeah, so if you, when you talk about choreography and stuff like that, that stuff to me is probably meaningless, really. It's, for, for me, it was more about just getting with Laurie and getting with Kathy and just, just playing with her form of spoon and energy because, you know, 
she, she, that she talks about being grounded. She talks about that opening ceremony two weeks before that, where 400 Central Desert women came onto the field. They wanted to come down to give a gift to the ordination people for that Sydney Olympics at that time. But they knew that young black woman was running, you know. So she, she connected. We all, we all had a part of Cathy at that time. Mm. And the the sense of fun, despite all the pressure, was so oh, impressive. Yeah, look, I, uh, yeah, look, I, I, but I think that's Kathy's nature. Like she's just this beautiful, the vulnerability that she was able to expose and and dig deep, really deep. Like she was, she was very honest in everything she talked about and the pressure and. You know, she talks about the pressure. She talks about being on the other side of the of the other side of the field before she had to come through the bomb and into the tunnel and then come onto the track. She, you know, she she relives that in the documentary by her her, her way of storytelling. And and it's um yeah, and it's you just you hear the innocence of that, but then you just realise how she was reflecting that and and there's this little light and this energy sitting sitting under that cloud of pressure. You know, she she said she she said the noise was so full on when she got out onto that track and she, before they even said her name it was loud. But when they said her name she said it was just like this ringing vibration in her ears. Um and you know obviously she she had a race plan and she had to go through that. You know? I think she was disappointed in the time because she did a faster time uh, at the Atlantic um, 96 games. Um, yeah, we were uh, just here, but she was up against the, the amazing French woman. So she, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's just all these stories. But, you know, it's, it's such a great documentary. It's a really, it really, Kathy is allowing herself just to, to be really open and, and to reflect that time. Yeah, it certainly uh, inspires goosebumps, that's for sure. Uh, the ABC premiere of Freeman is this Sunday, 13th of September. It's 7.40pm on ABC TV on iView. And uh, Stephen Page, artistic director of Bangarra Dance. Hey, yeah, go on. How old were you guys? How old were you guys? Were you oh, I just want to work this out. 15, yeah. 15. Come on, tell me now. No, nah, I was 15. 21. 21, was it? No, 20. No, 21, yeah. And I, yeah, I absolutely remember it. It was amazing. Yeah, it was a huge deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because I asked a lot of people, and, you know, Lillian was saying she was four, you know, and just um, one of my other boys within the company who just joined, uh, he wasn't even born. I think, or maybe he was just born, yeah. So it's just, uh, it's amazing what you did to all those young school kids at that time and how that's, you know, stayed with the generation and how, how it's empowered them. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me and hope everyone enjoys. Good on you. Thanks, Stephen. Take care. Triple R. Bringing the world of tech to breakfast is it's Vanessa Tolka. Morning, Vanessa. Morning, Daniel, Geraldine, Sarah. Great to see you this morning. You nice too. to see you. So nice to see you. Hey, uh, I thought that we should have a bit of a chat about the rise of software marking of tests. Some of it's AI-driven, some of it's not. And many of us have had our test results marked by programs in the past. You would have remembered getting out your 2B grey lead or sometimes, you know, you can only use a black or blue pen to mark a cross in the square. Those sort of tests uh, that have been marked by computers for a long time. But it's kind of interesting right now because we're at a moment where the technology is making a leap forward 
And we're also at a moment where teachers are under increased pressure to deliver lots of personal attention in classes, keeping up with curriculum, setting assignments, marking remotely is adding so much work. And we've got incredible casualisation in the university sector. So we're hearing tutors um, calling out that they've been assigned insufficient hours to get all of their marking done. So they're just being underpaid for the sort of work that's happening. So the design and testing and implementation of software type of assessment programs is pretty important. So as usual, I go to Twitter and I have a look around and see what's happening. And there's a history professor in the States named Dana Simmons. And her son's in year seven and he completed his first history test and he was devastated because he got 50 out of 100. So he goes and tells his mum, oh, mum, I only got 50. I'm going to have to get 100 on all the rest of the tests. It's really stressful. And she's like, that's okay, son. You know, some teachers grade really harshly in the beginning. Um, maybe it's just to, to make you work hard. I know you've got heaps of potential. And her son goes, no, no. It, it wasn't, you know, a teacher who looked at this. I got the result back as soon as I submitted the test. So it was the computer that graded this. And his mum's like, huh, that's really interesting, 50%, you say. So every time someone gets uh, their results submitted in this particular program, then they get to see the correct answers as well and they get to see what was expected. Now, correct answers when you're doing a maths problem, sure, there's a right answer. Correct answers when you're submitting a couple of sentences about history, that's a little bit more flaky. Yeah. So she's like, I'm going to have a look at what you're submitting here. Let's have a look. And as he worked his way through more assignments and she looked at the correct answers, she had a theory that the software powering the testing platform was looking for keywords in each answer. So she would then get her son to just, you know, create his answer however he was going to create it. And then she's like, and from that reading, let's, let's pick out some keywords and just put a little what we're going to call a word salad at the end of your couple of sentence response Bam, oh. perfect grade on every test. Oh, my God. Not a great outcome, right? You know, not actually testing and and, um, and seeing that students have learnt anything from this. So The Verge is a great tech um, reporting outlet and they picked up the story and they approached the platform for comment with no luck. However, they did find lots of information on the website that talked about how the program worked. And there were different ways that you could set up the testing. So you could set it up so that answers to certain questions receive 0% if they include no keywords and 100% if they include at least one, or they could set it at different measures. Now, the other thing that um, they found out is that the company doesn't use artificial intelligence to grade. They said that the software makes recommendations to teachers and it would say, hey, we think little Johnny deserves an A. Uh, but you can override this if you're looking at the answer and you don't think that's the case. That might be the recommendation of how the software should be used. However, we know in terms of implementation that that feature was switched off. There was no teacher checking this result. The, the kid was getting their result back in a matter of seconds. So it was auto, yep, accept the, the recommendation of the grade and let's just move forward with that. So what we're seeing here is problems of design and transparency. We're thinking... Right, you can say that this is a rigorous process, but if it's applied in such a way as to replace the teacher in the process, this is a real problem. So that's lesson one. Um, On to a slightly more complex approach, one actually driven by artificial intelligence. Have you heard of the IB, the International Baccalaureate? Yes. Mm. Yeah, so occasionally students would opt out of regular Year 12 in Australia, like VCE, and they'd choose to do an internationally recognised Year 12 type of certificate. It usually involved being fluent in a language and then this range of other stuff. So there'd be like 20, 30% coursework of your mark, 
And then most of your mark was dependent on the final exam. So these students would spend, you know, all year cramming um, to get ready for that. Now, the issue with that is that because the exams come quite late, in terms of getting university uh, offerings, you had to submit like an expected result that you'd be getting. And then if you met that result, you know, your offer would still stand from a university. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So it's a bit Strange. like when you're doing VCE as well. They base it on, say, your first three cats, if you if they still have cats. I don't know if they do common assessment tasks. And then, you know, if your exam results didn't vastly diverge from, from your averages, you'd still get any sort of university offer that had been made for you. But with the IB being based on 70 80% of exam work, um, trying to move to a different model in COVID has been challenging. Normally, they'd have exams in person and uh, they have over 50 years of participant data. Um, in the past, they, they always use this sort of prediction, but they taught things a little bit differently. So, they would normally go 90% of the grades that they predicted were um, were equal to what they, what they tried for at the end of the year and over 90% 5% of the total scores had been within a point of the predicted one. So they were very accurate at doing this in the old world. And they moved to an AI-based approach using historical data. They thought that they had a lot to go on. And in July this year, they released the predicted results for this year's cohort of students. Now, what they found was tens of thousands of students all over the world received grades that not only deviated substantially from their predicted grades, but did so in unexplainable ways. So the students aren't contesting that their coursework was marked fairly, like they were happy with those results. But for some reason, the predictions this time, when done by a computer instead of in the old IB way, um, had real problems in the data set. This was exacerbated by the fact that the dispute resolution process in past years um, required an appeals process of remarking individual students' exams um, and a, possibly a review of marks for coursework uh, to see if the assessment by school differed from the assessment from the IB International Board. And what was challenging for them was that they couldn't actually understand how the AI that was programmed to predict their results had come to that outcome. They couldn't repeat it with oh, their wow. manual processes. And then the fact that their appeal process kind of broke down because re-looking at the work didn't change the outcomes was a real problem. So we're at a very interesting moment in the development of software-assisted grading where we're between the concepts just beginning to be implemented and before it actually becomes good at doing what it does. This is that rubber hits the road moment where the theoretical solution um, can break in surprising ways. And I think it's just such a good um, moment to be thinking about, yes, AI is exciting and can do tremendous things, but we still need to involve the experts in the process of developing and testing and checking these sorts of uh, developments. If ingenuity or this company can be gamed so easily just by chucking in a word salad that doesn't convey any actual comprehension, why don't they, I mean, have they dragged it uh, and, and are they fixing it or is it still in play and what what yeah. is the future here, do you think? Look, that particular company, they've actually done something very simple and they're not using artificial intelligence at all. They can backtrack the decisions that are being made to get those scores. It's just that those decisions aren't very good. The, the bar's being set very low and kids can game it. They've refused to comment on this particular article, but they have been tweeting about the fact that, oh, we don't use AI, therefore our process is okay. I just I suspect that um, 
the, the scrutiny that they're under at the moment will result in better outcomes for students and teachers. Uh, but, but yeah, it's a shame. I mean, there's so much money to be made in this area that you see people going for a quick buck rather than, um, you know, not looking at how critical the outcomes of these sort of products mm-hmm. are. Yeah. Does it shame the teacher to, to hand back work that hasn't been overviewed or uh, is that is that not a major concern here? Like, I think it would be a major concern, except that lots of these platforms are also offering virtual teaching. So they're actually trying to replace the teacher in the process. And I'd suggest that that's probably misguided, particularly at this point. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It is not a panacea. It cannot solve every problem straight out of the box. It still has to be well-designed, well-tested, fit for purpose, has to consider the sensitivity of the outcomes. Yeah. This is just about good design. Yeah, AI in teaching, uh, fascinating stuff. Vanessa Tolka, brilliant, and we'll talk soon. Triple R. Dirt, dirt, dirt. It's where you grow your plants. Dirt, dirt, dirt. Hey, you got some on your pants. Can you stop singing about dirt? Never. <laughs> <laughs> Looking sharp, Digger's on the line for Down and Dirty. Morning, Digger. Morning, all. Look how bright your faces are. Oh. Uh, that's because um, Daniel's actually bathed in complete darkness except for the glow of his computer screen. Yeah, I said bright faces. The rest, mm-hmm. no, not so much. Nothing else. <laughs> how's um, how's experiencing primary school again? Um, I'm smashing it. <laughs> I got a um, I got a three stars and a double. Th- I mean, Samuel got a three stars and a double. Th- for his landscapes assignment the other day, it was amazing. Oh, that's a bit unfair. <laughs> it's rigged. No, it was supposed to be maths assignment. I said, no, nah, let's just do landscapes. It's much better. <laughs> <laughs> so he's handed 14 projects on forests. It's been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, uh, what, what's it? Uh, what, what about this this weather changing this the the weather changing that we've all noticed what um what's that doing for the gardening and your assignments uh, (laughs) no it's really exciting well there's lots to explore so you know get out and get your exercise you can get an hour more now um and look at the changes they're happening so fast everything went from a little bit gray and gloomy yesterday was a little bit weird but yesterday was the the probably the most obvious that we're in a season of change and spring is a season of change that the war the the wind is warm, even though it might seem gloomy, like the day appears to be a winter's day, but the weather is saying, hey, there's change afoot here. So that was quite interesting. It's pretty early in spring to get air temperatures like that coming from the north. So that's all indications that we're going to have a hot summer. It's going to be hot. And, you know, we always have hot summers, but it's going to be different this year. Look at California at the moment. You know, they're hitting, in some parts of California, they're hitting 50 degrees. Mm. So um, we've got to prepare for that. And so that's, that's what um, wonderful Elizabeth McCarthy, producer, presenter, asked me the question last week. It's like, you know, how are we going to prepare and, and protect our plants during the hot weather that's coming up? And I thought, oh, that's a bloody great question. I don't think I've ever actually answered it. So mm. a few tips about protecting your plants for, you know, getting everything prepared and ready for this change of season for spring and then flying into summer. Um, so the main one is to you know, map how much sun and shade you've got. So 
Sometimes people can live in a house or any property really and not really know exactly where the shady spots and the super hot spots are. So now that we're in lockdown, I think it's the best time to be able to go out numerous times a day at different intervals, let's say every two hours, go outside, stretch your legs, and actually with a pen and paper, even your you know, your mobile phone, take photos of where the shade lines and the sun lines are. Now, obviously, that's going to change as summer comes on, but if you, especially at midday, if you go out and find where the shade lines are now, by the time of height summer, it'll be roughly, that shade line will be half as deep. Does that make sense? Yeah. From a fence, if the fence is, you know, if the shade's coming out two metres from the fence at midday, it'll be at about one metre in the middle of summer. So mm. you, then you can know where the hot spots are going to be and where the shady spots are going to be. That can tell you if you're going to plant out your veggies or whatever, definitely don't put it here, here and here because it's going to be in baking hot sun. That might be 50 degrees this year. We might get to that kind of stuff, you know. Um I know some people live on balconies and have little courtyards where they don't have as much flexibility. So the best strategy for that is clustering. So that is where, like, if you've got plants in pots, put them, don't have them as individuals. I know it looks better to have them scattered out everywhere, but even if you just put them into tight little clusters and stagger them, depending on their porosity. So the vessel's porosity is, you know, how much water will evaporate out of it. So, for example, masonry pot like terracotta or concrete, the water evaporates out of the sides of those pots from sun and wind hitting them. So some like, kind of like put them into the centre of a cluster and then put, you know, pots like maybe plastic pots, which are less porous than terracotta, surrounding them so that the pot itself never gets impacted by sun and wind. Okay. Now, even plastic can heat up, obviously, um, but it doesn't evaporate water through the sides. It only goes through the top. The best ones is the old made polystyrene boxes. If you've got any polystyrene boxes that you're gardening in, put them on the outer ring because they're designed to be an insulator. So essentially you're creating this little cluster where the sun and the wind never hits the pots and won't dry them out because for most plants, the drying out comes from the roots. That's all you can see in commercial operations. Things like strawberries are grown in open fields it's only because they've got that drip irrigation that keeps them hydrated through the summertime that stops them from burning. So if you can keep the moisture consistent, you can stop the rest of it from from burning, even though you might be in a west-facing balcony. I know this is skipping ahead to kind of planting for spring, which is not really what we're talking about, but are there plants, you know, people that is what people are looking at at the moment, are there plants that you recommend to keep more sun bound than others when we're talking about say a veggie patch for example yeah in in short you're looking for for vegetables fruiting varieties is a good place to start so for producers okay. of, it can cope with more sunlight because it needs more sunlight to fruit so that excludes like you know lettuce for example things like tomato and corn because they're fruiting they need more sun so they'll cope a little bit better okay yeah. The other thing to look at is hairy leaves. If you've got you know, little fine hairs on the tops of leaves, that is that is a strategy for that leaf to transpire less. It's kind of like a little, like, you know, us having hair on our arms and that kind of stuff, trying to lose moisture and keep them, keep the temperatures steady. So tomatoes, for example, are really good at that. Okay. How does a gardener measure porosity? Um, frequency of water. So, look, if you're looking at your pots and you're using most pot, most gardeners would use the same potting mix across all the different varying pots. If you find that one you're having to re-water more frequently than the other, that'll tell you, obviously, this pot loses more water through transpiration than any of the other. Yeah. 
It can get quite scientific. It's not just gut feel. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, most for most people, I'd say go with the gut feel because yeah, you could like you know most people don't think of horticulture as a science, but it's actually a deep science. There's a hell of a lot to know. So um, just take it back to the absolute basics and be consistent with watering. Yeah. So you know, have it in a diet maybe every second day. These this little cluster of pots gets watered, and you just. Mm. Stick on a routine, it's like putting the bins out, you know. Maybe even midnight is when I do these plants. Yeah. Know, get it into some sort of regular routine um, and and really think about where you're positioning stuff because it's going to be a long, hot summer. If you do it once, yeah, think, people are thinking about, like you know, Sarah was saying about doing their veggies now, look at the spots that are going to be the perfect spots, northeast orientated spots underneath fruit trees for your veggies. Just commit mm. to that now and start getting into that routine. So they get a morning sunlight. Is there, other than, you know, hot sun, is there other elements that we need to worry about or we can do anything to protect? Um, the wind is the big one. Obviously, the wind can do way more damage. We look at this over the last couple of days, look how much damage the wind can do. So this is where courtyards and balconies tend to do a bit better with wind. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but it's those sort of situations where I remember in one courtyard, a hot courtyard I lived in Brunswick, when it was going to be 40 degrees, it was it was a share house of blokes. and was like, all right, blokes, we've got to do our bed linen today. Everyone's washing it <laughs> and put it on the clothesline, and that acted as a wind buffer. You know, it was kind of like the, the ah. uh, you, hanging things on the clothesline. Um, is a good one. Now, not everyone's clothesline's in the right position, but just even that kind of idea, you could put, you know, whack a few pegs in the ground and put some shade cloth or, or put a bed sheet over it just to act as a buffer for wind. We're not trying to stop it. We can't stop it. We're just trying to redirect it and, and lessen its impact. Mm. I've noticed a lot of citrus trees in our area with their, like, young citrus trees with all their leaves blown off as well. Is there not much you can do in that in that case? Uh, no, so the lucky thing is that, you know, spring is still here and if you water really well, they'll replace those leaves straight away. Oh, cool. So spring, is a sh- spring and autumn are shifting seasons and spring is our windiest and our wettest season. So um, it's amazing that anything survives really because, oh, there's blossom there. Yeah. <laughs> Get a good. I'm gonna have a. I think I'm gonna have a, sh- a shit plum year this year because all the plum flowers got blown off in the last few weeks. So I've already prepared the kids. That's not. There's gonna be no. Oh, no plums for Christmas. No plums for Christmas. Um, but there's you know apples haven't started yet. So hopefully, it usually it settles down before the apples and everything else starts. Our, cra- our crab apple trees um, started blossoming. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Do you know which one it is, Jess? Just a crab apple. That's all yeah. I know. <laughs> A crap apple. Crap apple. <laughs> <laughs> that would be crap. <laughs> is there anything? Is there anything you'd recommend for shade, or what? What do people get wrong when installing shade? Um, installing shade. The thing they get wrong is again the orientation. So you know, like with shade sails, I've seen this a lot. You know, you've got the. the it's in a triangle shape, obviously. Mm. Um, so the pointy end should be at where the, the least amount of shade. So let's for, say, for example, you've got a northern fence and your house is just on the southern side of the northern fence, so you're facing north, yeah? Um, the triangular part, most people just put it directly over the window and the pointy part on the fence, does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, yeah. The sun actually streams in under the pointy part and still gets in, <laughs> yeah? Yeah. To, it's not the shade sail, it's the shade that it casts. Yep. 
yeah, which that is folded up and wider, yeah. So it should be. It's actually you have to install it counter active at counterintuitively because you've got to think about the shade. So it's as simple as standing there with a broom handle and go, okay, if it's from here, you can see where the shade casts onto the house, yeah, or on the pergola or whatever, or onto the garden wherever it may be. So just do some mock-ups. Yes, you'd look like a complete clown out there with a broom handle pointed to the sky, but you know, do some mock-ups. Put a few stakes in the ground. And, you know, draw a triangle between them and think, well, okay, this is where the shade is going to be at particular times of the day. Yeah. God, no wonder you're smashing these grade one assignments. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there is apps. I think it's called Sunseeker. If people are into apps, there's a Sunseeker app which does that for you. Oh, cool. Uh, shows you the shade lines and the sun lines throughout the year of your property. So, um yeah, something to look into. But you've got to be planning for the future. Like if you own your home and you're going to be there for a while, think about trees that you can plant, how big they're going to get, and in five, ten years' time you can actually create the shade through deciduous trees. I think that's the best one if you can. All right, Digger, thanks very much and uh, good luck with the rest of Term 3. Good. <laughs> thanks. Triple Ah. Um, part of my job I see is to um, boost morale, um, you know, of, of the team and um, just uh, the world itself. Um, <laughs> so, Sarah, you mentioned um, this week that you're really keen to get a haircut. Yes. Yeah, and I and think a lot I. of people are. Yeah, a lot of people are keen to get um, get their hair coloured and styled and cut, and um, obviously, uh, I can't provide that for you right now. Okay. But I thought it might be nice to um, give you the the experience of going to a salon. Ah. Oh. So I thought we could do a little improvised piece. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's three different characters um, and, you know, we can decide amongst ourselves who wants to play what character. But obviously there's the hairdresser um, and just a bit of background on the character. So to give you, you know, just to get the ball rolling, um, setting up the scene. Um, so the hairdresser, like, just goes through the motions with the customer, like asks personal questions but ig- ignores the answers. You know, um, the customer, uh, um, they've come on a recommendation that the staff are super friendly um, and they're excited because, you know, they get to talk to someone new. And in these current times, that that's exciting within itself. Um, and then there's the hairdresser's partner um, who has been dating the hairdresser for three months um, and they've popped into the salon but there is no good reason for them to be at the salon. <laughs> hanging around a little bit. So um, okay. is there any particular character that you would I, like to play? I think I'd like to be the hairdresser just to be able to embody something totally new in my life, if that's okay, unless yeah. either of you had your heart set on that. No. Just feel like it'll take me outside of this world. Yeah. That's great. And, Daniel, what do you feel like you want to be? Um. Oh, I'm happy to get my hair cut. Great. Ooh. Fantastic. And I'll be the um, the weird partner that hangs, <laughs> hangs out. Um, my dead shit ball and chain. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> so 
Um, this is perfect. I love it. So, um, all right. So, uh, yeah, you guys will, will take it away because I enter the scene later. So, off okay. you go. Um, Clang, that's the bell opening with me walking in. Oh, we got hi, it. babe. Hi, babe. You got the book for 2 p.m.? Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what? Mona, if I in my be good in that big <laughs> Is there a piglet in the salon? Yeah. I never leave. It's my therapy pig. Oh. <laughs> Sit. So sorry. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> I can I, I can come back. No. Oh hi, babe. <laughs> sorry, I just had a disaster at home. Oh. Baby, you still you cutting hair? Yeah. Yeah, we haven't quite got there yet. We just um I just thought I heard a, a pig get <laughs> Yeah, the, the puppies were having a fight. The puppies were fighting. Oh, the puppies. Okay, babe, that makes sense. That's all right. Um, so 2 p.m., do you want to have a seat for your cut? Yeah, yeah. To here? Yep. Yeah, cool. just sit down here. Um, do you want a glass of water, a cup of coffee, tea? Uh, tea would be great. Thank okay, you. Okay, just get you some water to start. <laughs> Um, okay. All right. Baby, oh. are you going to be cutting hair all day? What? Are you going to be cutting I'm hair all I'm day? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Who are you? I'm, I'm your, <laughs> I'm your partner. Oh, I thought you were, you were Daniel's partner. Oh, I know. I'm just trying to remain professional in front of the customer. Okay. So. Oh. When I ask you who you are, it's because I don't think it's appropriate that you're in the salon right now. All right. Okay. So do you want to just take a seat over there? Yep. Okay. All I right. brought the puppy in. Okay. Now, um, so a glass of water and what are we doing? I can see it's been a while. It's been mm. a while, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's been a bit too, – it's been too long. It probably has been, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what – what are we doing today? I'm, I'm happy to leave it up to you. I'm happy to experiment. I think you're in charge. Ordinarily, I'd just do like a number three, but I'm absolutely um, at your disposal here. Um, okay, I defer to your expertise. Sort back inside. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's good. All right. So, so I'm just going to go out the back and get a, get myself a wine. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, do you want to just... I the dogs in. I hope that's okay. Well, there's nothing I can do about it now. Can you just bring me a glass, please, too? And also this man a glass of water he requested earlier. Just tea. Uh, it's just, it, we'll just start with some water. Yeah. Anyway, so short back and sides. Um, yeah. Anyway, so what's any... I can see... Oh, yeah. What are you doing on the weekend? Oh, just, you know, going to visit my parents and, um, you know, just had a baby, so I'll show them the baby. And, you know, I'm looking forward to it. They they haven't met the baby yet. It is, yeah. It's going to be – it's good weather, isn't it? Yeah. It is the weather that makes you just want to get out. And, like, I've – I don't know if you can tell because of the pandemic, I've lost my tan. So I'm going to be out on the weekend 
as well. Oh, like, cool. I'll be out of the sun, having a bit of a having a bit of a time, you know. Um, yeah. So, do you have any kids? Yeah. So I've just had a baby, and I'll be taking the baby to my parents. Uh, and and yeah, it's on. It's our first one, and oh, you know we we feel hard, so lucky. Aren't they? Kids are hard. Well, it's early days, but yeah, you know it's uh, yeah, it, it is hard, but it's it's really exciting. It's a really exciting time. I mean, I've been homeschooling my eldest Rocky, <laughs> and honestly, it's just been you know between this and Dar, where's the wine? Yeah, no, it's here and seen. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, well done, everybody. <laughs> I think um, uh, I don't know what to say about the um, <laughs> about the puppies that had a massive fight at my feet, and I think um, I don't know what happened. I think someone, one of them, stood on the other one. Maybe I stood on one of them. What a what a time to be alive. Anyway. I have never heard that sound come out of a dog before. Honestly, it, it is, sounded like you backed over a pig. Yeah, it's it was quite terrifying, I'll be honest. <laughs> I thought that something else had come in to attack her, but it was just Two puppies having a go at each other because <laughs> this is the, the most insane just cuts I've ever been in. <laughs> Melbourne's own Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast, The Best Bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.